Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're John chapter 14. I want to talk today about the new covenant. I, I don't know how much to condition this, but I'm going to, I'm going to, one fellow said last night, he said, I heard some, I heard you say stuff today. I've never heard anyone preach from a pulpit in all my life. Now that can be bad. <laughs> it can be like, uh oh, uh, because I'm not one who's trying to be novel. And, uh, but the problem is if you try to be biblical, you sometimes, you know, and, and, and you've got to be real careful. You've got to be humble. You cannot get proud. You cannot develop your own thing. You cannot want to be different. You, you, but, and I don't think I am different, but I think today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to say some things you may not have heard. And I, I, I have been processing it and seeing it in the Word, and uh, I, think it's, I think it's there. And you can, you can test that today. Um, but may the Lord open our ears and our eyes to see him. And may I be given the grace, Lord, to speak your truth, to stay on the path and not turn right or left. We ask for grace upon us all. We love you, Lord. We're not, we're, this isn't religion to us. We are walking with the living God, and we are choosing to be your disciples. Come, Holy Spirit, now, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'll start at, um, I'm going to read from verse 15 down to verse 24. Again, we are and will be for a while in the upper room on that last night uh, in which he was betrayed. He will walk out of that upper room and go across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane, pray for about an hour, and then Judas and the uh, religious police will show up and arrest him. So he's, he's preparing his disciples for his departure. He's telling them, here's what's going to happen. Here's your life once I've ascended to heaven. Here's, and he's assuring them, he's comforting them, uh, telling them the, the things that God will do, that they will not be left as orphans, but he will be with them in the spirit. Uh, but he says some very, very clear things, and I want you to, you'll, you'll see a theme here. I'll start at verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Would you say that? And then he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. I'll explain that word later, that he may be with you forever. Uh, that is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Would you say he abides with you and will be in you? That's an extremely important statement in, in my opinion. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. I, I, do you notice a theme between love and obedience? Yeah. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. 
Judas, and this is uh, Judas, the son of James, not Judas Iscariot. Uh, he, he clearly, among, we saw this last week, the, the disciples just don't get it at all. Uh, they have their own preconditioned ideas, and they simply are not willing to tolerate his. Somehow his thoughts have not broken into uh, their concept, their eschatology, really. And Judas said to him, Lord, then what has happened that you're, not going, to disclose, you're going to disclose yourself to us and not the world? In other words, I, we thought you were going to set up your kingdom on earth and rule here in Jerusalem, and we were going to be your, your top assistants. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He goes right back to his theme. My father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me, and does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Notice the connection: He who loves me will obey me. Just really strong, and I'll send my Spirit, and He's going to move from being beside you to being inside you. I'm going to do this great work. He He sees something changing. The new covenant. Have you ever wondered why so many individuals who claim to be Christians behave so badly? In some cases, large numbers of so-called Christians have behaved worse than unbelievers. And some, even at a level of evil, explainable only by demonic influence. Have you ever been reading a history book or watching a documentary only to suddenly realize that the horror being described was perpetrated by people who called themselves Christians. You're just about as quiet as they were last night. <laughs> have you? Have you? Have you read history and have you watched some of these things? Only to some, at some point in the process go, wow, aren't they, how does that happen? There was, a, I was watching recently a, I watch documentaries and I read history. That gets me in trouble, both of them. And, and anyway, I was watching a documentary on Africa. There's a six-part series, very good one, and um, on the history of Africa. And, and uh, at one point, I'm watching this thing where Europe actually had a meeting in which they uh, divided up Africa as colonies and said, you get this part, you get this part, you get this part. It was, it was amazing, um, sort of stunning. And all of these are, are, are Christian nations who are doing this. And uh, one of the kings, I'm just going to leave it empty, but uh, one, of the, one of the kings said, I want the Congo. And he said, I, I want it um, because I want to Christianize it. I want to bring the gospel to it. And I want to uh, civilize it. Well, in the, in a, he came down and turned it into basically a, a prison camp and began to do things to people. I'm not going to describe it. I'm not here to be grotesque. But things that would just take your breath away. In fact, they're nauseous. It makes you nauseous to even think about it. Not even allowing Christian missionaries or ministers to come in and work in the Congo because they'd make trouble. But he undoubtedly went to church on the weekends undoubtedly uh, was uh, crowned with a Christian crown and a cross on it, I bet. And they sang hymns. And when he got married, he, they'd pronounce it in, in Jesus' name. When they buried him, they'd say, buried him into Christ. 
all of this religious trapping, all of this Christianity, and yet he seemed to do things that were virtually worse. I'm not, I'm not even saying as bad as unbelievers. I'm saying things that are more grotesque than the average unbelieving nation would do. How in the world does that happen? Somebody's got to sound the alarm. At some point, it has to say tilt. It has to say something's wrong here. When I was in Israel, uh, I think it was last time, the time before, one of the Israeli men said to me, he said, you realize that the worst things that have ever been done to us have been done by Christian nations. He said, we've fared better in the Islamic world than we have with you. And, and then you read the history, and he, he's not exaggerating. He's absolutely correct. And that is just, it's, it's just breathtaking. I saw another documentary. These get me in trouble. And it was about a situation during World War II and the Holocaust. And, I, and, it, and, I'm, and they're, they're, they're going through what's going on. And it, at some point, it, it just struck me, I thought, that the people that I'm watching doing this, and it was several, several nations involved, all probably, when they went home on leave or went back home, would go to church on the weekend. And uh, at Christmas time, they'd sing Silent Night. And I, 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 the, the, the disconnection between their founder and their behavior is simply something you cannot ignore. Something's terribly wrong. This is not working, this kind of Christianity. Whatever's going on, I, I would contend this. Real Christianity produces real Christians. So if what I'm getting is not real Christians, then what I'm ministering is not real Christianity. Somebody famous said, you will know the tree by its fruit. You don't pick figs off of thorn bushes. You don't pick grapes out of briars. So if the tree's good, it's Fruit will be good, and that means obviously nothing. And by the way, the, the, what he was talking at that time about religious teachers. And he said, so if the tree's good, the fruit will be good. And if the fruit's bad, it's a bad tree. Now, I don't think we can go forward into the future, and I don't think we can see revival, and I don't think we can see some move of God unless we readdress the tree and say, what on earth is wrong? Because right now, we don't have to go very far. I mean, you, I haven't even touched American history. We're sending people to uh, Lame Deer uh, with the Northern Cheyenne. I mean, you go back into the way the Christian America treated the native people. And it's, it wasn't the native people who broke their promises, it was the Christian people who broke their promises and they went to church on Sunday and sang hymns and took communion and were grateful in their idea for their salvation. How can that be? I don't think it can. Something's missing.
Or have you noticed that with sad irregularity, a Christian leader will be caught doing something awful? It's unnerving. It is discouraging. It leaves a person wondering if Christianity is true. If it does what it says it does, then why isn't it making its followers more like its founder? Where's the change? Where's God? Where's the miracle? In my opinion, this is the most serious charge against Christianity. Look, if you weren't a Christian right now and you simply read those histories and watched those things, would you want to be? What you would say is there are a bunch of pious people with a bunch of standards they themselves don't keep. And in fact, they violate it left and right. But they want to demand that we all keep their moral standards. And they, they, they self-righteously try to rule us and tell us what to do. But they don't do it themselves. And wouldn't they be, on average, pretty well right? It's amazing that God still can work, given the situation. These glaring failures make it appear that our faith is just one more set of religious teachings. One more philosophy among all the other teachings and ph philosophies in the world. Yet to be fair, we have to point out that while some Christians and so-called Christian societies have behaved badly, there have been individuals and communities of believers who have loved and served their Lord with amazing sincerity and selflessness. Most of us know someone whose life reveals miraculous change. How many of you know somebody, they were, a, they were a scoundrel, they were a rascal, and they came to Christ and by George, their life changed, and they are really a different person. How many of you know somebody like that? Yes, that we, that, there's this incredible hypocrisy, and then we also see dramatic change in some individuals. What's the deal? So the question is, why are some people who call themselves Christians becoming so much like Jesus, while others who call themselves Christians behave no differently or even worse? I'm going a little farther with that later than unbelievers. As we read through John's report of the disciples' final evening with Jesus, we can hear in the Lord's voice great expectation for the future. He clearly expected the disciples to change and become like him. He knew that change hadn't happened yet, but he was sure a miracle would happen to them after his cross and resurrection. One that would leave them different, empowered, and above all, obedient to God. Did you hear all that? You will love me. You will keep my commandments. I will send the Spirit. He will be with you. He's not going to be in you. You're going to, be, you're going to have a, a whole new walk. He was confident. At that moment, they were all confused. They were frightened. They clearly weren't there. But he looked right past that and saw something. He clearly expected his disciples to change and become like him. He knew that change hadn't happened yet. But he was sure a miracle would happen to them after his cross and resurrection. One of the big, that would leave them different, empowered, and above all, obedient. And as he served them the bread and cup from the Passover table that evening, he gave a name to that miracle. He called it the New Covenant. Would you say the New Covenant? The new covenant. He said it would transform rebellious, selfish, independent people into obedient, loving, humble disciples. That miracle was something God had promised as far back as Moses. The prophet said, 
It was a gift the Messiah would bring to all who would truly repent and believe. I think this miracle or miracles that Jesus called the new covenant is what causes some people to become real Christians and others to be Christians in name only. The lack of it helps explain the hypocrisy we read about in history and the absence of a conscience in certain individuals. I'm not going to go down the road, but have you lived with, and I'm rather certain you have, people who would, who would absolutely call themselves Christians, who would maybe be very religious in many ways, but appear to have no conscience. They will lie to your face and not ever feel sorry about it. It's like it's your problem. They can't believe you. It's, it's like the lights aren't on. It's like somebody gave them a lobotomy. Some things, it's just like, really? Where is that? I'll tell you, that's what, really, that's what really got me in trouble as a pastor. Is I thought when people became Christians, they had happened to them what happened to me. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm way from far from perfect. I'm going to make all my own stupid mistakes. But I do know what's inside. I got a conscience and I can't do some of these things. I can't ball face lie to you. It's just, I'm afraid to. I fear God. He's going to get me one way or another. We're going we're gonna to correct this. And I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about losing my salvation all the time. But I'm just saying, I, I just know my heavenly father knows how to discipline me. And I just, we're not going to do that. Amen? Okay, so how do some people, that isn't there. It just isn't. It isn't there. But they church go, they, they, they do all kinds of things. They spend their time, maybe even work in churches. But that isn't there. Actually, the Christianity Jesus envisioned that night can't exist Apart from it, that's a big statement I just made. This miracle, this miracle that comes, the Christianity Jesus envisioned that night cannot exist apart from that miracle. Everything he and his apostles taught was designed only for people who had entered this new covenant, for people to whom God had given a new heart. Let's go back into that upper room and, and listen to what went on. To understand the references Jesus made in these verses about love, obedience, the Holy Spirit, and life, we must first recognize that each of these themes was a very important element in the prophetic promises. I want to take you back now. I want you to see that what Jesus was saying that night was not new. He was not inventing theology. He was not coming up with something. He was not revealing a new season. He was saying what's been promised for, for a thousand years, at least is now coming. What I'm about to do will bring you what has, God has been saying he would do for you and the prophets prophesied he would do for you. I'm the one bringing it. So you got to see, this is total fulfillment of a promise. Starting with Moses and continuing, Moses looked into the future and saw the discipline God would bring upon Israel for its disobedience to the covenant they had made with him at Sinai. But at the same time, he saw the miracles God would perform inside his people and they repented, after they repented. He said a day would come when God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your soul in order that you may live. That term circumcise the hearts, Paul picks it up. 
And he talks about the circumcision, what? Not made with hands, not with human hands. What he's saying is God will come in and he will, he will, he will take and cut away from you the selfishness, the rebelliousness, the independence. He's going to come in and sovereignly, supernaturally, miraculously change the inside of you. It won't be something men do. It won't be something we accomplish. It will be a miracle from God. See, Moses has, if you, if you go back to Deuteronomy, whole Deuteronomy is a, is a covenant document. In chapters 27 and 28, you've got the blessings of the curses. Have you read those? Yeah. Oh, boy. It says if you, you know, the blessings are these rewards. It's the carrot and the stick. And so if, if you do the, if you do this obedience, you're going to, you're going to have, you'll be the head and not the tail. And you're going to, I'm going to bless you in the land when you're going in and you're coming out. And you're da, 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 and I'm going to do all these good things for you. But if you disobey, you turn to other gods, I'm going to give you locusts. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you plagues. I'm going to give you uh, no rain. I, I'm going to give you uh, uh, mildew. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send people in, and, 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 and then it goes on, and it gets so graphic. I mean, it just, it's like, ah. And then Moses says this. I mean, this is Moses. He lays this down, and then he says, but of course, you won't obey him. He says, you're going to walk away from him so badly someday that he will push you out of the land and scatter you into the nations. He will take this, this nation and destroy it. He says, but because of who he is. He will someday bring you back when you repent. When you truly repent and call on him, he will bring you back. And then he says, and he will circumcise your heart. He will do a miracle inside you so that you won't do that again. He will change you and then he will bless you. Isn't that beautiful? So Moses starts this. I mean, I, it pro I haven't studied enough to know whether it goes back to Abraham. Probably does. But I know that it's there with Moses. And then the prophets pick it up. That miraculous change of heart, that new unrestrained love for God, would result in people obeying his commandments. Moses said, and you shall obey the Lord and observe all his commandments. That's, that's what's happening when God does his, his heart work. Then Moses told them that their heartfelt obedience would bring life. By loving the Lord and obeying his voice, God's people would live undisturbed in the land God had promised to Abraham. That's kind of what we prayed when we prayed Psalm 85 just now. The, pro the prophet Jeremiah also spoke of this inner miracle. He called it a new covenant. He's the prophet who gives that name to it, a new covenant, and said it would begin when the Messiah arrived. Unlike the covenant made at Sinai, this new covenant would involve a miraculous change of heart. Quote, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. That interchange would bring an intimacy with God, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Notice that absolute forgiveness and the miraculous change of heart. Ezekiel described this same miracle. He listed three specific steps God would perform within each person. First, God would wash away the person's sin. Second, God would transform the person's heart by removing the heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. And third, God would put my spirit within you 
and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. How is he going to do this interchange? He's going to come inside them. He will put his spirit within the person, and that then will bring the change. As we listen to Jesus, we hear these same themes. Love, obedience, the Holy Spirit, and life. In verse 15, he said, if you love me, you will keep or obey my commandments. In light of the prophetic passages we've just read, we can understand his words not as a challenge to prove their love for him by trying more fervently to obey his commandments, but as a description of what will happen when the new covenant arrived. He isn't just sort of putting it out there going, well, if you love me, you'll obey me. And if you don't, so come on, get with it. Let's see you guys. The whole context he's looking forward to is going, there's a change coming. There is a change coming. Something's going to happen to you guys. Uh, you, you'll someday rejoice that I went to the Father. You, you'll be actually glad I ascended because of what's coming to you. You're going to love it. So he's talking with this great anticipation of this miracle. And he says, and he's connects, absolutely connects. He says, if you love me, it'll bear its fruit. A good tree will bear good fruit. Yes, of course, it is always possible to choose to love him more. But in this context, looking forward to these inner miracles, which would begin at Pentecost, Jesus' words were likely meant more as an assurance to his disciples that they would love and obey than as a warning that they might not. In his first epistle, the Apostle John explains that love for God and the desire to obey him are always present in a new believer. Have you read First John lately at all? Yeah, it's worth a reread. John, I mean, in fact, if you don't get what we're saying today, you won't understand First John. Because he'll come along and he'll say, he said, the one who, who knows God, the one who's born of God, will not continue to practice sin, Period. And, and then you, lots of us, you go, know, well, I still make mistakes and do stuff, so maybe I'm not saved. You, know, you go, he's not talking about mistakes. He's already opened up his whole book with, when you, we're all sinners, come on, we all do stuff. That's not the point. He's talking about the heart. He's saying the heart of the born again, truly changed, truly who belong to Christ, that heart is new. God has come and put a new heart in them. And that heart will incline that person to obedience. Now, you look at your own, and you'll know it. You can tell. This is really not that, it's, this is not that mysterious. This is not that sort of strange out there. You know whether you fear God and you love him or you do not. You know whether you're just looking for ways around the rules. Whether you're trying to just kind of get yourself to heaven and have a party while you're going away. You can tell whether you're gaming the system or whether you really love him and you long to please him. You can tell it's a very real change. If it's not there, you still have some business to do with the Lord. It, it, will, it will come down to full surrender and faith in, a complete faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's called repentance and faith. Those two things bring the new heart. Those two things cause him, and by full surrender, there is a place where we bow our knee. He simply becomes Lord. I'm not simply asking him to get me into heaven and bless my business. The, he'll get me into heaven. In fact, he will help you and guide you in your, in, your, in your enterprises. But this is not simply getting the man upstairs to bless your stuff. That, that, that is, that's the kind of thing 
<laughs> that got us to do what we did to the Native American people. I mean, that kind of religion produces that kind of vileness. It's vile. Jesus is the Lord. He is the Son of God who's come for us. This is not a game. It's not a little philosophy. It's not a religion. It's not your doctrine. It's a person. And when we come to him like that and say, Lord, I, I believe in you and I love you, I surrender to you with all I am. And I, I trust your cross. You are my righteousness. I'll never earn my own. But I believe in what you've done for me. At heart, the, the, the God comes and he pulls out a heart of stone. And he puts in a heart of flesh. And you become a child of God. You can, you've still got your, you can still have addictions. You can still have fears. You can still have all kinds of weaknesses. In fact, that's the process of life, isn't it? But you no longer need the law. You no longer need that kind of thing. You now want to do the right thing. What you need is instruction. What you need is prayer and coaching and help and, 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 and brothers and sisters to walk with you and even confront you at times. But, but the heart, your, your basic uh, uh, compass inside, it's headed the right way. Do my, do I make sense to you? Do you see what I'm saying? Why is this important? This is important for, well, one for me that I teach the truth more to say on that but for you as you present Christ to others we can't present a false gospel but when I became a, a youth pastor this was I've been at this a long time I, I, I became a, a youth pastor in a church in 1972 January 1st 1972 and I even remember then having having well, I, I started out with two girls Neither of them saved. And, um, but I remember realizing, oh my goodness, they're listening to me. They're believing what I say. I better be right. <laughs> I could take us all to hell. Have you ever had that feeling? Like, uh, just a minute here now, I need to get this right. Because if I mislead you, because every so often you'll find people actually listening to you. Oh my goodness, they're, they're listening. They're gonna do what I say. It better be right. So I've spent a lifetime going, Lord, what is the gospel? What is it that brings this new life? Because I had had it. He had met me and saved me and changed me. I, I mean, it was night and day. I knew he was real. There was no ifs, ands, or buts. Was this real? But I wanted for others that what had been done for me. And that didn't always happen. And it's been a process of learning. As we saw earlier, the new covenant promises continuous forgiveness. Oh, this is important. The new covenant promises continuous forgiveness. Did you hear that? And their sins I will what? Somebody say remember no more. Yeah. That's a beautiful statement. Continuous forgiveness and continuous uh, 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 promises continuous forgiveness and continuous forgiveness in turn makes it possible for God's spirit to dwell inside an imperfect person. And not depart every time that person sins. Have you wondered why he hasn't left? God, how come you're still here? Have you, have you ever said that? I, I mean, most of us have. You know, given my, my stupidity and my weakness, why are you even still with me? You know, it's because you have a new heart. You have bowed your knee to him, he's, he's, he really has come and dwelt within you. 
And you have continuous forgiveness. So what you have is a parental relationship now. Your heavenly father is not going to put up with nonsense. Don't, don't kid yourself. This isn't like he doesn't care. He's, what he's not going to do is leave you. What he's going to do is make it miserable if he has to. And, but he'll, he'll discipline you. He'll train you. He'll, he'll deal with you. He, but he won't forsake you. He will, he's raising sons and he's raising daughters into the image of his son. That's the predestined agenda. It will never change. That's where you're going. If you're in, that's where you go. You become like Christ. And so he just lays hold of you. Says, well, that was a, that was a, a blunder, you know. Why'd you do that? Okay, here we go. Come on. Come on. But he will just raise us along. It's a very different relationship. Continuous forgiveness uh, in turn makes it possible for God's spirit to dwell inside an imperfect person and not depart every time that person sins. And it is the spirit's presence that makes this new level of love and obedience possible. So Jesus assured his disciples, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper. Now, let me take that word a second. The word is paraclete. Uh, every Bible in the room has a different word for that. You know, advocates, sustainer, helper. I don't know what yours says. But it hardly needs translation. Paraclete, it's, it's the, the Greek word. It, it's, first of all, it's got a preposition on the front, para. And then it's got kaleo. And we get our word call from it. It's exactly what it means. So it is someone who is called and stands beside you. So you picture yourself in a battle. You know, there you are fighting away and, and you get two or three people on you and you're, you're losing the battle and you go, help! And one of your friends on the other side of the battlefield hears you and comes, runs over, stands beside you and starts fighting with you. That's parakaleo. That person has come to your side. Para, we get the word parallel. It means to be beside something. And so uh, railroad tracks are parallel because they are beside each other. So this person is called to stand beside me, to be with me, to fight with me, to help me, to say, stand. So whether in a courtroom, it's an advocate. In, in trouble, it's a helper. In weakness, it's a sustainer. You see how it takes all those names? But it's, that's what it is. So Jesus is a paraclete. But he says, I'm leaving you. And so now you'll have another paraclete, and he will be inside of you, and he will be with you into the age. As, as we've seen, by promising to send the Holy Spirit, he was not proclaiming a new doctrine. He was announcing that his cross and resurrection will bring the inner transformation for which Israel had long been waiting. Let's go back. The problem with grace. Christianity replaces the covenant God made with Israel at Sinai with a new covenant. It replaces the law of Moses with grace, which is the gift of God's righteousness. But grace is appropriate only for those who have a new heart, one upon which God has miraculously written his law. The law of Moses is based on curses and blessings, threats and rewards, it motivates right behavior by appealing to the flesh. But if a person's heart has not been changed, threats and rewards are the only way their behavior can be controlled. Because they are still by nature rebellious, selfish, and independent. Grace will actually 
produce lawlessness if the heart is not transformed. Did you hear what I just said? Hang on, it gets worse. It removes the fear. Grace removes the fear of God and assures a person that they will go to heaven regardless of their horrible behavior. How do you think that king that I mentioned earlier, who did things that I can't even describe in here without making us all sick to our stomach, how do you think he lived with himself? I think he felt he was under grace. In fact, in many of those cultures, you're born a Christian, you're baptized as a child, you're in a covenant relationship from the time you, you arrive, as far as you're told. So there's no personal engagement. You just assumed. And so you're under grace. I actually think grace, when taught to, to the unregenerate heart, produces lawlessness. It's actually dangerous. It is a gift meant for the new heart. To the new heart, God just pours out grace. You don't, you don't need the law anymore. Now I'll teach you as a father. But if that heart's not changed, the grace actually does more damage than good. In many ways, grace produces worse results than no religion. Because it overrides the natural restraint of the conscience. I think some people, would be, were they not Christians, would be afraid to do what they did. What a person might have been afraid to do, grace assures will be forgiven. It can produce even worse character than legalism because it removes any fear of punishment. My appeal is to history. Just look at it. The grace of God is meant to be given to the person who has been miraculously changed inside, to the person who loves God and wants to please him. That person does not need threats or rewards to do the right thing. A transformed heart needs only to be taught how to obey, how to break free from the control of the flesh, or escape the assaults of the devil. And that can take, depends, many cases you have no one to teach you. You have people all over who come to Christ and really mean it. They are, they have a new heart, but they, no one's taught them how. No one's ministered to them. No one's really taught them how to draw on the Holy Spirit or welcome him into their, in, a, in a powerful way. He's, they're given the Holy Spirit the minute they believe. They don't know how to move in that. So the ignorance leaves them very vulnerable. And the church has traditionally, in many cases, only scolded and threatened. Told people, stop it or you'll go to hell. And never said how to stop it. Because they didn't know, to be honest with you. Like obedient children, those with a new heart seek to be nurtured and trained by their heavenly father. Because the gospel has so often been stripped of its essential demands, repentance and faith, real repentance, full surrender and faith in Jesus Christ. Many people have been misled into thinking that they are right with God and that for them, the law has passed away. So they have tried to function in the freedom that Christ gives only to turn that freedom into an opportunity for the flesh and fall into deeper bondage than before. Another helper, sooner, no sooner had Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, than he said this, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, so that he may be with you into the next age. That's the literal thing. Here's all says forever, but it literally just says, ton ion, into the age. The Greek word translated as helper 
is paraclete. It is a person who comes to help us when we call out in need. He was speaking about the Holy Spirit. He said the Holy Spirit was someone they already knew because he had been with them. But he would soon take up residence inside them. This step, which he described elsewhere as a baptism of the Holy Spirit, is absolutely foundational to the new covenant Jesus was promising. In effect, he was saying, not only will you be given a new heart, you will also be given new power, which will make it possible for you to obey my commandments. They would not only want to do the right thing, they would be able to do the right thing. But the process of helping people receive this power has been neglected over the centuries, at least as badly as the essential demands of the gospel. Did you hear what I'm saying? We're not even sure. I mean, you, you don't even, people don't even talk about the Holy Spirit. Certainly not how to draw on him, how to put to death the deeds of the flesh with him, how to receive the baptism of the Spirit. I, even, I, I've been doing this almost every weekend. I'm praying with somebody to just, who says, Pastor, I've tried and I don't know how to receive this. You know what I always say when I'm dealing with a Christian? You already have him. Now, what I want to do is help you receive, as it were, to step into what he's given you. It's as though he's, give, he's already given you the gift. All I'm going to do is help you take the ribbon off and open the package. Do you follow this? When you have Christ, you have everything. He withholds nothing from you. There aren't separate experiences. But that doesn't mean because I've been given it, I know how to step into it. I know how to, how to let him have his way in me. You understand? And I, and I watch people. I watch people as they, people who are good Christians with a real, they've got the new heart. The whole thing's there. They've been serving the Lord. But then I, I, just, I just help them. Let's, let's just open up to the power of the Holy Spirit. And I, I help them do that. And I watch the power come. And I just watch a fresh blessing come into that life. I mean, it's really moving. And it's so real. I, I cannot deny this. This is not emotionalism. It is not some kind of psychological deal. It's not manipulation. It's not any of that. It is genuine. It is obviously genuine. People are stepping into a new, that, receiving what's been given to them. He didn't only give you a new heart. He has given himself to you, to dwell within you, and to give you the power to walk in the obedience that your heart longs to have. But the process of helping people receive it, I said that even those, even those who re repent and believe are, and are thereby given a new heart may often be left without help to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which brings the power and divine guidance needed to live the righteous, fruitful life Jesus envisioned. He envisioned a spirit-filled, spirit-led life, didn't he? Instead, new believers are often inundated with teaching, which they lack the power to obey. That's what we, we don't, we don't need a much, we don't give you the spirit, we just want to, Teach you and tell you, tell you what to do. So old behaviors may continue or even grow worse. Demonic harassment may increase. The person, yet the person has no understanding of how to stop it. They've not been taught anything. And prayers for help seemingly go unanswered. Some stop trying to change. Some give up the faith. And some hide their private lives and hope for a miracle. This problem of powerless Christianity is so long-standing and widespread that many think this is all Christianity has to offer, but it's not. The prophets promise the Christianity Jesus expected us to proclaim offers both a new heart and a new power. And the promise that God would send both is deeply rooted in Scripture. Moses described this miracle. He looked forward to the day in which God's 
would circumcise the hearts of his people. That means God will supernaturally remove the rebellion, selfishness, and independence that's found in every human heart. Jeremiah called this miracle a new covenant, and here's what he said this new covenant would do. Would you read it out loud with me? But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Isn't that beautiful? I'll come. You don't need the threats and the curses, the blessings and the curses. You don't need all of that kind of thing, because I'm going to come and I'm going to put my law within you. What does that mean? You're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul, and your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means. He's going to put that inside of you. That is now their new heart. And people with that heart couldn't possibly, couldn't possibly do the things that have been done by people who call themselves Christians. Could they? It's not possible. Just not possible. We have to admit the fact that there's been an enormous amount of hollow, nominal people of, of Christianity. People who are not born again. They do not belong to Christ. They only have theology. Or name only. They put crosses on their shields as they go through. That is not Christianity. And we have to say it loud and clear. Jesus came and he's real. When he saves a man or a woman, he changes them. He doesn't, he doesn't. Ezekiel explained this miracle would take place, how it would take place. Through him, God said, would you read this with me? I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Those are permanent rules. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's the prescribed rituals. So there it is, a new heart and new power. The desire to obey and the ability to obey. And both are still available if we truly respond to the demands of the gospel, which is repent and believe. And if we actively welcome the Holy Spirit to come and take up his residence inside us, then it's a matter of learning to walk in the grace and power he has given us, the bread and cup. With these truths in mind, let's listen carefully to what Jesus said to his disciples during the Passover meal on that final evening. First, he took some bread and explained that he, like the Passover lamb, would die for them. And then he picked up the cup that is served after the meal has been eaten. It's called the cup of redemption. And he held up that cup and he said, would you read this with me? This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Do you hear it? Do you hear it? He picks up that cup from the table. It's the, th it's the fourth of the cup after the meal. He holds that thing up and he says, this cup is the promised new covenant. My blood, my life. I'm going to die for you tomorrow. And my blood poured out for you is going to bring the promise the prophets have spoken of. Moses looked and saw that promise of the new heart, of that change and of the coming of the spirit to dwell within God's people. I have brought that. My death brings you that. Hallelujah. What a glorious announcement. 
In other words, my cross and resurrection will bring you the promised new covenant. Today, as we take communion together, let's join the, those disciples at that table. And when the bread and cup are passed to us, let's receive that new covenant. Let's receive the new heart and the new power that he died to give us. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.